Only one more Inspire left for the rest of the year. Can you believe it? Only one more left. Unbelievable. I was in New Zealand last week teaching 32 students on the life of David. 25 of them came from or come from Alberta, Canada. So that was very interesting. And I'll tell you two funny little stories what happened during the week. Uh, one was I was at the airport waiting for my flight and the announcement came over. If you would like chicken, please come to the chicken counter. And I'm starving, hungry, because I'd only had a little bit of breakfast that morning. And I'm thinking, oh, I'd love a bit of chicken, but why isn't anybody else moving? And then I realized she was saying, check in counter. If you'd like check, if you'd like check in, come to the check in counter. Oh. And then the other funny thing, I thought this was really hilarious. So they get me over there the second week of the term. So I'll be back over there in February because it, the students have just come. They've just arrived. And so they asked me to call a bush dance, which I've been doing for many years. So I did that on the Thursday night. So I call the bush dance. Then we have a couple of other little dances after that as well, just to break it up. So we have the chicken dance and uh, we have the macarena. And I asked a couple of students, remember the 18 to 24-year-olds? I asked them, I said, what was the favourite dance that you enjoyed most of all this evening? The hokey pokey. <laughs> I knew you would laugh at that. The hokey, they'd never done it before. They'd never heard it before. And they said, we love the hokey pokey. Stick your right leg in and shake it all about. Isn't that so funny? I'm teaching a new generation. The hokey pokey. Unbelievable. Well, with only two left, thinking about what I should share with you, having done the Beatitudes, I think it just kind of makes sense to just naturally go on a little bit further with these uh, next two messages uh, from uh, Matthew chapter 5. So reading this morning from Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 to 16. Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 to 16. Jesus speaking, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lamp stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus is obviously speaking to disciples here because he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. He's not talking to unbelievers. And he describes the people here that he's specifically talking to in these ways. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. When we commit our lives to Christ, we're not whisked away up into heaven, but we remain here on earth facing all the challenges of living in a broken world we remain here not only to live, but to influence, to influence. We pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It may or may not be a word, but being an influencer these days is an in thing, to be an influencer on social media, 
to be able to someone who influences others. To influence someone is just more than what we say or more than what we do. That all flows out of who we are, who we are. And the effectiveness of what we say to others and what they hear depends largely, largely on the relationship that we have with them, how they feel about us. There are some to, who listen to us intently. They appreciate our wisdom. Interesting, last week, perhaps one of the things that interested the students more than anything else was, what is it like living as a Christian at your age, Neil? At your age. <laughs> I know. I thought, wow, I am getting old. Sharing with the guys group about that as well. They were really interested. And when I said to them, I said, you know, I'm coming back in February and I'm teaching the Holy Spirit in February and I'll be doing a survey with you to find out your spiritual gift. And for some of you, the spiritual gift might be singleness. Wow, the jaws just dropped and the eyes popped out. No, Neil, no, no, that cannot be. Oh. What we have to say to others, what they hear, depends largely on that nature of relationship that we have with them, how they feel about us, which in turn derives from who we are, what they see in us. You wouldn't go to a financial planner for financial advice knowing that he was no good with his own money. You wouldn't buy a car from a dealership knowing that that car dealership has a reputation for selling shonky cars. You wouldn't go to a cafe knowing that that cafe has been inspected recently by the health department and vermin running through the kitchen. You wouldn't do it, would you? Paul wrote to the Philippians these words. Chapter 4, verse 9. Philippians. Keep on doing the things you have learned, received, and heard, and seen in me. That's Paul, not me, by the way. That's Paul writing it. Don't, don't do that to me. That's Paul. Paul is saying, look at my life. Look at me. And I'll just go over those words again, right? The things you've learned, received, you've heard, you've seen in me. Keep doing those things. The Christian life is likened to salt and light by Jesus because both of them are influences, both of them. So believer in Christ is to be an influencer in the world. But it doesn't just happen. Salt may lose its saltiness and the best thing for it then, says Jesus, is for it to be thrown away and trampled on. Light may be hid under a bowl where it benefits no one. There's no guarantee of perpetual saltiness, no guarantee of perpetual light. We are to continue to remain, I stressed that this last week in, in New Zealand to the students, we're to maintain a dependence, a trust in God if we are to remain influencers. So let's have a look at the first one, salt of the earth, salt of the earth. In the ancient times, salt was used as a preservative seasoning. Maybe you've been to markets, as I have, particularly in third world countries, where they just surround their seafood, their meat with salt. It's so warm. I remember being in Brunei and the flies around the market there and all the fish just packed with all this salt. The word perishing in the Bible is not 
only used of a present state, it's also used of a process, and it's also used of a final state, perishing, the word perishing. Let me read some verses to you. 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians 2.15. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And then Jesus speaking about this future aspect in Luke 13, verse 3, unless you repent, you will all perish. So perishing is a present state, it's a process and may also be a final state and the way to stop perishing, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The way to stop the perishing process is to receive the eternal life of Christ. We are like a preserving force among those who are perishing in this world. It's the Christians in the world, I stressed this too with the, with the young adults last week, who make life worth living in the world. We are a preserving force for godliness and good. So it's preserving things, salt. It's also purity, purity. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, the people of Jericho complained to Elijah that the water in the city well was bad and that the land was unfruitful. Elisha, sorry. So Elisha asked for a bowl of, of salt and he threw the salt into the well of water. And then Elisha said these words, Thus says the Lord, I have made this water wholesome, from now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been wholesome to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. God makes the impure pure. And the purity of God is shown in his people. And purity is an attractive thing. When we think about the purity of Jesus, the purity of Jesus did not condemn the sinner. In fact, the very opposite, sinners were attracted to Jesus. No one has ever walked this earth as someone so pure as Jesus. But look at the people who came to him. Tax collectors, sinners, the outcasts, the lepers, the prostitutes, they were the ones that were drawn to him. Charles Price was here in April, spoke here on the platform. He says in his commentary on Matthew, genuine purity does not so much expose the impurities of those around as raise their sights and stimulate them to seek something better. Purity. Again, I know I keep referring back to these young adults last week. But speaking to the guys on Tuesday night, my plea was to them, keep your lives pure. Do it for Christ, for Christ. 
Impurity is not something that we can do in and of ourselves. It's the difference between self-righteousness and the righteousness of God. Self-righteousness is motivated, motivated from ego, comes from our own self-discipline, and then the result is pride. Self-righteousness condemns the unrighteous and makes them feel unworthy and unwelcome, whereas God's righteousness attracts the unrighteous. So salt is preserving, salt purifies, and salt also gives flavour. The most common aspect probably when we think of salt and what salt is and what salt does. We all have fridges at home that's keeping our meat cool so it doesn't go off. We know the salt of the sea helps the sea to become pure. But salt is also used as a flavouring, and we know that. I doubt if there's anybody here who doesn't have a salt shaker in your pantry at home. Salt draws out the distinctive flavour. Chefs tell us that you've got to rub the salt onto the piece of steak before you put it in the pan. Without salt, some foods are bland and boring, tasteless. Just add a little bit of salt and the flavour is enhanced. So when we think about the Christian life, we can say the same thing. The Christian life adds flavour to life. We should be the ones that bring about a sense of joy, of excitement, of flavour, appreciation of life. Again, I left last Thursday night, it was about 10 o'clock when we'd finished dancing, and I thought, what an amazing time. Here were with another group joined us as well, over 50 young adults who absolutely loved the evening. It was something that they'd never done before. We know Aussies, we've grown up with bush dancers, but this was something for the first time they'd never experienced. And as I was walking back to the guest room where I stayed, some of them came up and said, Neil, thank you, it has been such a good night. Good, fun, clean, wholesome fun. And they loved it. The Christian is to bring flavour to life. Instead of withdrawing from the world, Jesus says that he keeps us in it. There is an attractiveness, isn't there, of a Christian who maintains their dependency on God and who shines the holiness and the purity of God. But salt also does another thing. It creates thirst. Eat some fish and chips. Isn't too long before you know you need a drink. It's not only what we say about the gospel that points people to Christ, it's the quality of our life and it's the enjoyment of Christ that should awaken a thirst in others. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, that the chief end of man... I've been thinking about this a lot last week. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him. When you think forever, when you think about all, that they, all the words that they could have chosen, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and all the words that could have been then substituted. But they use the word enjoy. Enjoy. Are you enjoying God? Just enjoying him for who he is. As we associate in the world, 
We should awaken in others a spiritual thirst and draw unbelievers to us. Box says in his commentary, disciples are useful as servants to impact the world and to influence it for good. But there's a warning that Jesus also gives here. For the essential quality of salt is the difference that it brings to the environment in which it is placed. It resists the perishing process. It brings purity to that which is decaying. It brings taste to the bland. If not, says Jesus, then throw it out. Jesus warns us that we can lose our saltiness. The very thing that does make us distinctive the life of christ in us and through us maintained by dependency on him may not be seen to the point that we are no different to the world in which we live our lives may lose their value when something has no value it's to be cast away and trodden on pushed into the ground We can so easily lose the respect that we once had. Holcroft writes in his book, let me read this to you. He says, just as salt resists decay and spoilage, so the believer is to extend his or her influence on earth. The salt that is used to preserve is, however, ordinarily itself sacrificed in the process. The idea of unsalty salt is seen as a deliberate paradox. Though impurities in unrefined salt may sometimes cause it to become insipid and useless. In the spiritual realm, Christians who so adapt to the world that no difference can be seen become unsalty salt. Salt that ceases to function according to its purpose is useless. The only thing for it is to be discarded. And Jesus doesn't offer any more specifics than that. Negatively, we don't want to be a person that God considers useless. Positively, we want to be a person that continues to live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And in John 17, 15 to 18, Jesus' prayer is that the Father not take us out of the world, but that he protect us from the evil one. We are not of this world, Jesus says, as he is not of this world, but we are sent into the world. Separation from the world is not isolation from it. It's living a life separate from the world. In a community of believers, like we are here this morning, in a community of believers brought together by grace, called out from the world, but at the same time living in the world. What is worldliness? John describes it in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world nor the things in the world, for all that is in the world, desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes, pride in riches, comes not from the Father, but of the world. Worldliness is an attitude of life 
which seeks to fulfill our agenda for our ego. You may think we're doing well sometimes if we isolate ourselves as much as we can from the world, becoming a little bit like a monk maybe. And yet still, that is wrong. For detachment from the world could end up being the pride of life where we congratulate ourselves that we're not having anything to do with anybody, thinking we're so holy. Jesus says, I put you in the world, the world that is full of crooks and perverts, to be a light shining in the world. His indwelling presence equipping us to function as salt. And then the second thing Jesus says to this group is that you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Jesus here states that those who know the truth, have the truth, live the truth, are the ones who can provide spiritual light in a world of spiritual darkness. Don't we see this at the moment in the world, spiritual darkness? We are to let our light shine before men that they might see our good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We want to sing, don't we? This little light of mine. This little light of mine, let it shine, let it shine. The light of verse 14 is the good works of verse 16. Evidence of our salvation in Christ is demonstrated by our good works. It's our faith in Christ which leads us to the good works that he has prepared beforehand not the other way around. It's not good works that lead us to salvation. That ends up in legalism. Unbelievers see our good works. Scripture says this is what will happen. They will respond to the light, generating these good works. They will come to the light. They will find salvation in Christ and they too will become believers and glorify God. That's how it works. Holcroft in his book, The Kingdom Person, as the light of the world and as one individual person must make his or her influence felt and not attempt concealment. The one thing that a light must do as light is shine. The believer is to have a useful effect upon earth and not exist merely for the sake of personal advantage box says a similar thing in his book like light we are not designed to be concealed and jesus pictures it here as like we are a city on a hill our light performs a service a ministry that others might see the life of christ in us jesus said in john 9 5 I am the light of the world. We looked at that previously in the I Ams. So how can I be, how can you be as Christ is, as a light to the world? Charles Price says, not by imitation, but by derivation. Imitation says that I get the glory. Imitation is me copying someone else. 
He goes on to say, but if it's by derivation, then the source of the light is not something of my own, but something which is given to me, which then belongs to me. For to derive is to draw from an objective source. Take the light. Take the lights here. Shining. We all know that we need electricity to supply the power for these lights to shine. The light is visible, has its origin, only in the electricity that is supplied to it. Cut off the electricity and we're all going to be in darkness. The bulb can try as much as it wants, or fluoro here, can try as much as it wants, if it went out, to be like one that was lit, but it would be a useless exercise. Whether it be a candle with a wick or a lamp filled with oil, the consistency of the light does not come from the wick itself. It comes from the source that it draws from. For left to its own resources, it would burn out very quickly. Its constancy only comes from the energy that it derives from. How can you and I be a light in this world? Have a relationship with Christ. Maintain that intimate relationship with him. The union with Christ and the communion with Christ. The whole thrust of light is to exist to benefit others. When I was down at the Bible school, it was my task at 10 o'clock every night to come downstairs from my little place and walk around and turn off all the lights. You say it a hundred times, don't you? A hundred times. But every night, Neil would come down the staircase, walk around and flick off all the lights. What use is light in a room when no one is present? One function of the light of Christ's life in us is to benefit others that they also may be the light of life. Not tucked away under a bowl somewhere, but out there. St. Francis of Assisi, I'm sure maybe you've heard these words. He said that when he was speaking to his men to go into the world and share the gospel with others, said something to the effect, something like this, by every possible means, preach Christ as you go, and if necessary, use words. Be the salt of the earth. Be the light to the world. Let's pray. Father, I think of the hundreds of people that are going to come across our paths, Lord, as a, as a group, as a community, as a church, as we meet here this morning. The hundreds, Lord, when we think of all the different people they're going to have interaction with over the next week or two. We pray, Lord, that your light within us, your life within us, Lord, might radiate that this little light of mine might shine that others not seeing us Lord might see Christ in us that others might see the expression of you through our personalities all different 
the way we interact with others, that you might love them through in us and through us, that you might bless them in us and through us, that you might encourage them in us and through us for the sole purpose, Lord, that those who don't know you might come to know you. Be pleased to use us for your sake and your glory, we pray.